the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Common good friends. My name is Ian Simpkins, along Brian Fromm. Little known fact: uh, the voice singing there is actually Brian <laughs> harmonizing to the beautiful tunes of at our least intro in music. My head. <laughs> at least, at least in, in my head. head. Uh, the show is all about diving into the stuff that we share in common, but also the stuff that maybe we we don't feel like we share in common. The stuff that doesn't have easy answers. We want to enter into the gray and the tension because uh, what we're seeing is that more and more people kind of get caught in their holy huddles, and uh, so often. We spend more time kind of arguing and throwing rocks at each other. We want to be a space uh, created for dialogue to engage in the conversation. You can do that a couple of different ways. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. You can listen on any podcast device that you use. Bottom line is we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to interact with you. Uh, That is kind of the goal and vision and hope for the show is that we can engage with people who are wrestling through the same stuff that we're wrestling with. And this Tuesday, uh, you know, your life has been crazy with just uh, newborn yeah. and yes. you said a dishwasher, bro. It was always something that happens, right? Sickness in your house, whatever else it might be. Guy, my, hit, guy hit my car. No, well, there you go. <laughs> Keep it going. Uh, my wife is out of town this week. She is in Florida, and I have, uh, I have a freshman in high school, a fifth grader, and a fourth grader. And man, I've never felt the weight of their schedules more. <laughs> it sure. is like I am like all of you single parents out there. You are like to be applauded. You're my and heroes. yes, you're amazing because to try to I have the color coding on my calendar going right now of yeah. who goes where, and it is it's like a rainbow man. It's unbelievable, <laughs> and like I can't be in two places at once, let alone three. It's just. Uh, I'm happy for my wife, but she needs to come home soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, prop, props to you, man. You're you're a good dad. Well, uh, speaking of Florida. We had the polar vortex last week, and uh, (laughs) the story that some of you maybe saw um, is a heartwarming one, one that not only, like, I found really encouraging, but also, like, strangely inspiring, like, like motivating, and here's here's what the uh, title is. It says, Candace Payne got 30 hotel rooms for homeless people in Chicago during severe cold snap, and the story goes on to talk about not only her um, seeing homeless men and women on the streets in this, this tent city as, you know, temperatures were dipping well below 20 below zero, mm. which is dangerous by any metric, um, but just felt motivated to do something about it. So she she not only got these rooms, but then like threw it on social media. It was like, who wants to help out? Yeah. And like, you know, this is more than $10,000 later, um, they were able to get a whole bunch of people off the streets. And I think, man, I... There's a reason stories like this so resonate with us, right? Like whether you're a person of faith or not, you see something like that and you're like, oh, yeah, we need more, we need more of that in the world. Mm. 
she said, I'm a regular person. It all sounded like a rich person did this, but I'm just a little uh, black girl from the South Side. I thought it was unattainable, but after seeing this and seeing people from all around the world, that just tells me that it's not that unattainable. We can all do this together. Man, what a cool story. Just heartwarming uh, because it does. We expect... When it's cold outside or doing stuff like that, you expect right the government to do something or the churches or some other nonprofit organization. And her heart just broke for people. And she said, I'm going to do something about it. And then, and then when the idea was put out there, other people stepped up. Uh, and I love that we take time on the show, man, to t- say that not all of humanity is broken. Yeah. <laughs> There's no people kidding. doing cool things because we want to spur you on and encourage you all out there to do good things. So good for Candace Payne. Uh, saving lives literally by yes. getting people off the street, like not even figurative, literally probably saved lives and spurred other people to do likewise. Like there's a kind of people want to be helpful. People want to do good. Uh, and this woman taking the initiative is uh, is heartwarming and also challenging. Well, and I, that's what I love about her saying, like, I'm just a regular person. Honestly, when, when I first shared the article, uh, a whole bunch of friends were like, oh, it's probably Chance the Rapper. Like people assumed – Mega millionaire, right? Which is that's kind of what I assumed. I did not assume Mm. average, ordinary, thirty-five-year-old woman like that. To me, is so convicting and so inspiring. Like what she said was, you know, we we can do this together. It's that togetherness piece. It's the common piece that we're often talking about. That we're better together, even amidst our our disagreements and our diversities. And I think what she goes on later in the story to say is equally as convicting. She said that this is a temporary fix. It's inspired me to come up with a more permanent solution. And mm. that, to me, this one act, she like saw a need, met that need, yes. recognized, okay, this is a systemic issue. How, how can I actually uh, work towards something more long-term? And it made me think of this, this quote that I read years ago from uh, Dom Helder Camara. He said, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. But when I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. And I, I think what, what Candace is, is touching on is so important because it's not just about this flash in a pan, like good deed, and we all share the article a thousand times and then we move on with our lives. She's saying, no, this was a good thing that I was able to do that a lot of other people came alongside, but yet also I want to talk about finding a more long-term solution. What what are the things that we can do as people, as she's you know self-identified, this regular yes. person, to help make a difference in this world? And we get... There is the part of it that's like we don't think that we have enough money or can do something like this. Right. But a lot of it's just we don't even look. Right. You know, like if you had said to me, hey, it'll cost this much and people throw money in to take people off the home, off the street who are homeless in the cold. I'd be like, that's awesome. Yeah, like, I didn't think of that last week. Right. You didn't think of that. It was like um, we get so um, just assume that other people are going to do it and we get so wrapped up in our own lives it's yep. a, the part of this uh this challenge is just to like look up every now and then and look for the needs around you and i love that she said this is a temporary fix and i'm going to do something more it's like a, a passion in her got got just kind of unleashed yeah. by taking one step right and that's often the way this is like you don't need to be like well you know with the rest of my life i want to end homelessness yep. homelessness right but instead you know what i'm going to help the homeless in the cold wow now i have a passion to help them more I think there's a lesson there. Well, I think, too, it's an important lesson for all of us that sometimes when that stuff is ignited, this passion in her, for example, um, you know, we as, like, adults sometimes like to squelch that, right? Like, she's got this renewed or maybe brand new passion for this particular topic, and I I, I just uh, lament the fact that I'm sure people are like, hey, Kane, it's too big of an issue or too big of a fish to fry. Like, that's what I think Jesus was getting at so often Mm -hmm. when he talks about becoming like little kids, because little kids – See a problem, like let's fix it. Let's love this person. Let's yeah. let's bring them in. You know, and I think 
I think it was Shane Claiborne. He said that it, the problem isn't that we don't uh, love the poor. It's that we don't know the poor. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we love the poor sometimes as a, as a statistic or as something that we write a check for. He's like, do you even know these? Like, start first by just simply like knowing a name, knowing a story. And so mm-hmm. she's got this passion now that's like going a million miles a minute, which I love. And sometimes my concern, and I know that I do this, is sometimes like in, you know, under the ruse of like maturity or wisdom, you can like squelch other people's passions yeah. to do good things in the world. And that's really convicting, you know? Absolutely. And it all, this also reminds us like the city of Chicago and all of its taxes and stuff. Like, why are there homeless people out there in the cold? Yeah, right. Uh, and this is a, a, you know, this is a good lesson in the answer is not just the politicians. Let's give them more tax money. Let's do more stuff. But instead, how about we raise up grassroots people and empower them uh, to solve some problems that our government doesn't seem able to do? Absolutely. Well, Candace, if you're listening, uh, you're an inspiration to us. Absolutely. And I hope that more and more people, us included, will step up to make a difference in the world. Coming up next, there's an article uh, out of Christianity Today. And here's the headline. It says, move over sex and drugs. Ease is the new vice. Ease is the new vice. We're going to dive into that topic here on The Common Good at AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. show all about diving into the, the mess, the gray, the tension, not wanting to always resolve it even. Sometimes he and I will disagree. Sometimes you may disagree. Uh, we would love to hear about that, actually. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com and all the previous shows are there and you can listen to the podcast. And uh, I mentioned earlier, so the, the title of this story comes from Christianity Today and it says, Move Over Sex and Drugs, Ease is the New Vice. Mm. So it, it opens talking about two uh, pretty important and seemingly non-correlated stories about, uh, one, millennials are having less and less sex, so they're less and less sexually active. This idea of like, you know, the, the freedom of sexuality mm-hmm. that you know came from maybe our parents' generation. They're actually... Uh, having less and less. And the other was an article out of the New York Times um, that found that millennials are eating less and less breakfast cereal. This was than amazing. Their parents and grandparents. And the reason listed was that they found it to be just too much work. That cleaning up after a bowl <laughs> and spoon that cereal requires was just too much work. And so the, the, uh, this writer mentions these two studies to draw this one conclusion. Um, that it may not be sex, drugs, and rock and roll that is the new vice that particularly young people are drawn to. It's ease. Yes. It's comfort. It's not being bothered. It's having everything delivered right to my doorstep. It's having everything at my fingertips whenever, however I want. This is actually developing some problematic patterns of behavior, it seems. And, and I found this article in Christianity Today interesting because, for one— uh, it was one of these articles that I kept saw, kept see getting um, shared around by different Facebook friends and Twitter and all that stuff. You know, you start to see the same article pop up, and right. you're like, "Oh, I'm going to take notice to this." Um, and I really think this author is, this writer is really hitting on something, and mm-hmm. because everything in our culture is moving towards ease, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. even the commercials you watched at the Super Bowl the other night, like it's all about making our lives easier. So I can speak to my car and it will do this. I can speak to Alexa. I can, uh, w- you know, we're ordering in uh, the, the studies right now about the next generation and the, the infrequency with which they cook. Yeah, right. Is pretty unbelievable. Um, things that even me as a 41 year old uh didn't do now the next generation seems to be moving more and more everything with our technological advances Hmm. makes our lives easier faster 
And what they're finding is that increasingly that is the lens through which we're judging everything. Does it make my life easier or harder? If it's harder, it's not worth my time. If it's easier, I'll engage in it. And this has some really uh, dramatic um, consequences on things like marriage, on things like parenting, on things like discipleship. There's all sorts of dangerous pathways for this. Well, there's a couple of pieces of the story that are, I think, just brilliant that I want to just read. Uh, Writer says, Reckless abandonment to the sensual pleasures of the body is not our only vice. So, too, is evasion of bodily life, which Mm. is, in one aspect, any attempt to squirm out of the tedium of being enfleshed, emplaced beings with obligations to love. It makes for a nagging question. Who do we become when we're no longer willing to bother. And a little bit later in the story, uh, the writer says, here then is the quandary we're left with. As we continue to reduce the physical burden it takes to move through the world and the efforts of our lives are often only as effortful as staring our smartphones in the face, because why bother with the home button? Right. How will we galvanize the real will for love of God and neighbor? And that to me is the million dollar question. As we continue to strive after things being Comfort and not, there's nothing wrong with comfort no. in and of itself, or having things delivered to your house or smartphone. I don't think any of that's bad, but the trend though of like that becoming the thing by which we orient our lives that that has a great imp- like you were mentioning it earlier. Like marriage is work. Yes, it's amazing, but it's also hard. It's work. Like caring for ourselves and neighbors is is work, and it requires this. This incarnating, yes. right? This fleshly living it out in real time, and it often is inconvenient. Yeah, it's if, bothersome. It can be. T- it can be tough to really wrap our brains around. Yeah, if you're looking for the easy life, uh, don't get married, and certainly yeah, don't right. have children. I'll ask you: Is your life easier over the last three weeks since you had another kid? No, no, but it's it is it's so better. Beautiful, yes. though. It's so beautiful. Yes, and but when ease becomes the primary lens through which we look at life. Then, when marriage isn't easy, the we're, we're stuck in a we're, we're stuck in a bit of a quandary, right? Do I get out of this marriage, or do I work at it totally. and try to make it better? Uh, when my my kids aren't easy, do I work at becoming a better parent and and growing that relationship, or do I just check out totally. and like just let the TV raise them? Discipleship. Uh, you show me the verse where Jesus says, "Hey, I'll come after me, and it's going to be really easy." Yeah, life's going to be no. Being a Christian's hard. Yeah. Following Jesus is hard. We keep, we always use that phrase. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And if we're like, oh, you know what? Following Jesus is going to make my life easier. You're you're not going to last very long. And so this thing of ease, while it seems like natural, like yeah, you know, ease is good. No, no, it's on some of the biggest topics of yes. life. It's really dangerous. Right. And I think that's important for us to see not only that, like, philosophically that's true for us, but also we see that, like, lived out in Christ. Uh, Julie Canlis writes this. She says, The incarnation is the rule, not the exception. God enters into the world and engages with us on creation's terms. He uses ordinary created things to bless us, save us, minister to us. Our Mm -hmm. ordinary humanity is the place he has chosen to meet with us. And the story goes on. Following Christ, then, I am radically called to the bother of the material world with its attended burdens and griefs. Hmm. Love in both its everyday gestures and grand flourishes is the radical embrace of burden, not the rejection of it. And I, that to me is, a, that is such poetry yeah. and so much easier said than done, right? It's this a whole idea that we've been talking about for the entire life of this show, engaging with people we disagree with is a burden. Yeah. Like diving into a conversation with somebody that you don't see eye to eye with, it's way easier just not to, right? And I think... 
whether it's Amazon Prime or yelling at people on Facebook, like these burdens to see them not just as opportunities to, you know, share our faith, but to actually live out the deep sacred humanity that we were given. And you just brought up Amazon too. Like, let's also just be honest. The search for ease is expensive. Yeah, that's true. It really is. You <laughs> could either have something fast and easy or yep. cheap. Yep. And uh, this whole thing of like, I need to do everything for ease uh, can get really expensive. And there's uh-huh. that old phrase about being first world problems, right? Uh, I've spent some time in Africa. You've had some fascinating stuff. You talk about India, I believe, yep. and some other places. My time with people in Africa, they were never like, yeah, I'm just looking for an easier, I'm trying to make my life easy. Like right. It's kind of a first world problem, but man, it's a dangerous problem we all face. Well, and it's easy for us to jump right to the crucifixion when we yep. talk about like, Christ didn't live a life of ease, right? And that's the obvious example. Yep. But I think even the first 30 years of relative obscurity, he, lived, he had to go through the pains of like being a young boy and like yeah. having parents. Like that's also, that's a part of the bother. I think that is... Man, I, I'm really convicted by this story personally because so often I wouldn't say it this way because it feels awful to, to say, but like I am looking for the easiest option, the the thing with the least amount of bother or obstacles. And Absolutely. So often I think the gospel requires of us to have our plans wrecked a little bit, to have our calendars shifted because God's placed in you um, this need to love the other, and that yeah. often will require us uh, – living differently than we would have otherwise on our own. I mean, just getting to know my neighbors is hard. It's inconvenient. It's stretching. Like, I'd rather just pull in my driveway and go in and watch some TV. And, no and that's kidding. fine on certain days. But no if, kidding. if your life is always defined by what is the path of least resistance, uh, that's not a biblical life. And you've got to wrestle with that because I think it's going to hurt your marriage. That's it's right. going to hurt your parenting. And ultimately, uh, it's going to hurt your ability to follow Jesus and who he's called you to be. I think you're right on, man. Well, coming up next, uh, Kanye West is starting a church, it sounds like. So we're going to talk a little bit about that here on The Common Good at AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, see, now this is this is my song. This we, feels new. Can we just let this play for a little bit? Let it, let it go. Yeah, you just, you just got to let your head bob a little bit, too. I think that's an artist named uh, Chet Faker. Anyway, so welcome back to The Common Good. My so name you is... know this song? Oh, yeah. Okay. This, is, this is No Diggity, No Doubt, but it's a remix. Huh? Yeah, check it out. It's a, it's a worthwhile jam. Okay. Uh, so welcome back to The Common Good. My <laughs> name is Ian Simpkins, <laughs> and I'm joined by Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into what's going on. It doesn't even need to be current stuff. Somebody was asking mm-hmm. me that earlier. Is it just about stuff that's happening right now, no. or could it be about stories that maybe aren't getting representation or conversations that need to be had that we're not having and the answer to all of those yes. is yes. yes we want to dive in we know that life very rarely has a nice little bow tied up on top and so we want to dive into those things rather than shy away from them and we'd love for you to dive in with us you can find us on facebook at the common good radio show you can also go to 1160hope.com all the previous shows are there you can find the podcast we would love to hear with, uh, hear from you interact with you in uh, whatever capacity you would like and i mentioned earlier Uh, This story that I found on Vulture.com, and the headline says it all. Love it. Is Kanye West starting a church? This week, the Christian Post reported that Kanye West, always getting into something new, has been conducting what he's calling Sunday services at his home. The services seem like religiously themed weekly concerts where he appears to be performing gospel versions of old songs. And uh, this apparently has become a thing. Like, people are driving from far and wide to be a part of these, and it's happening, like, consistently, and... He's sort of referring to them as 
Sunday services. So is is this a church, in your opinion, Pastor Brian? Is this qualify as a religious service? Well, those are two different questions. <laughs> take, take them as you will. I don't want to sound like the arrogant pastor, but this uh, I, I'm going to say also I just list, finished listening to a podcast about Kanye West that probably skews this a little bit sure. for me. <laughs> sure. Um, this feels a little bit of self-promoting and, yeah. uh, and another way to get music out there. But, you know, it does it does raise the bigger question of in our culture or what, what does constitute a church? Because there's that verse that's always thrown around probably not well where two or three are gathered yeah and uh, oh i'm just doing church at home today whatever and no i think there's something about the gathered people <laughs> yep um you know under the word and that uh, verse by the way where two or more are gathered has nothing to do with worship services it doesn't it's about sin and discipline it's about conflict resolution yes. but we do often kind of use it like as a it's not about you use you meeting with a friend at a coffee shop and going this is church and like right. i think there's some more structure to church and so um, is Kanye West actually starting a church? I, I'm, I'm going to probably land on no on that one. <laughs> well, later in the story, it says the idea of Kanye starting a church is not so far-fetched, considering his mother-in-law, Kristen Jenner, is the co-owner of the California Community Church. She took the church under her wing in 2010, and it's still up and running. Did you have any idea that was a thing? No, I need a co-owner of Four Corners Community <laughs> Church. <'cause laughs> is there a website that a donor can go to? Man, that is, I've never seen the word co-owner and church put together. That is something. Must be a California thing. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I thought that this story would be an interesting jumping off point to another story that I found on Relevant Magazine. And this title is just as provocative. It says, Four Ways the Modern Church Looks Nothing Like the Early Church. Mm. Now, this is something that's near and dear to my heart, but it also is a complicated question because, like, right off the bat, one of the things that differs between the modern church and the and the early church is that the early church was illegal, right? Like, where uh, we're at is the goal for us to be—so I, I sometimes yeah. don't think this is a perfect um, rubric to run, yeah. to run everything through, yeah. but they raise uh, four particular issues, and uh, I'd love to get your feedback on these because I think they're fascinating and also kind of convicting. The first is— uh, how we view other Christians, mm. how we view other Christians. It, it goes on to talk a little bit about the the family of God, the family that extended far beyond the nuclear family and was held together by this unconditional bond of commitment and service. And so this idea of like the family being one of the chief um, metaphors, the chief analogies for the church, they like really, really lived as if that was true. And I don't know, do you, do you see that same sentiment lived out as strongly in most modern churches? No, not at all. And, you brought up a great point. It's really difficult when we as 21st century American Christians are going, oh, I want to live like the first church. Really? Like yeah, they right. were like getting lit on fire <laughs> right? They, and used as torches. They right. were being used as like entertainment. Well, not that part. I don't yeah, want that exactly. part. Right. And, but it goes to this concept of community. Like they were turning their backs on their families to follow Jesus. Yeah, right. So therefore they had no families. And so, therefore, the church became their family. Yeah. And so it, it's really hard to be like, well, we're not like them. But I, I worry that as churches, we're becoming less and less like this uh, in the midst of, of a world of loneliness and um, just busyness. The, the church is meant to be a family. It's community. It's, it's, uh, what do we always say? The church is a family you belong to. It's not something you attend. Yeah, right. And so many That's of good. us, we treat the church as a building and one hour a week, uh, maybe one hour every two weeks, something that I <laughs> attend to 
uh, to get my Jesus fix, yeah. to carry me through instead of a family that I'm going to enter into messy life with and just kind of do it together. Well, it made me think, too, the heading of how we view other Christians doesn't just simply apply to the people that also go to the same address that I do, you so, know, like four to two to one times a month. Like the idea, not only that within the people that are already a part of like this very specific tribe, but how do we talk about Christ followers in denominations that we maybe disagree, mm. that they, you know, come to some conclusion theologically and how quick we are to distance ourselves from them, that also seems to be something that the early church was regularly going after, right? Blowing the doors wide open on who was welcomed, who was invited, like Mm. how they did life together. Like to me, gosh, I I find that just endlessly uh, inspiring. So the second thing they, they offered up was how we spend our money. It goes on to say, many churches today spend most of their revenue on salaries, building mortgages, and other material supplements uh, to ministry. But such distribution of funds runs counter-opposite to how the early church spent its money. The New Testament talks a lot about giving money, but rarely, if ever, talks about giving toward salaries. And it never mentions giving money toward a building, um, which to me is convicting because you, know, you and I are both pastors. Right. Like, it, it is my full-time vocation, it is, and I'm so grateful for it. I'm, I think our building is phenomenal, and I yeah. love that we, like, seven days a week at the Yellow Box, something's going on. There's conferences and concerts and I, I just think our team does an amazing job like stewarding those resources well. But I do also read stuff like this, and I'm a little bit convicted about how, mm-hmm. how much actually is given um, to the least of these. And we, you know, we t- developed a whole kind of offshoot called Community 412, which is like our social justice and compassion wing. And they're such a helpful um, component for us because they help us keep those things front and center that, hey— this is out of whack in how our, our money is Good. being spent, but that's not always the case at every church. No, and I think this is, again, one of these where we just need to understand some context of the early church. Uh, I don't think they necessarily said, I don't want a building or I do want a building. I just don't think it was even an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the convicting part of this is what amount of our money uh, is going to um, to kingdom causes and to helping the least of these. That's huge. Like our church budget... Uh, every time I look at it, it feels out of whack because mm. so much has to go towards salaries and building in this. But Which is yet, real. That's real. But yet I can't imagine pulling away the salaries or the building. And so right. every church has to walk that tightrope. I would say if you're a church person out there, as long as you're having the conversation yeah. and, and asking how do we free up a little more money and a little more money, uh, then then you're kind of targeting the right spot. And to live the kind of generosity that we so often are asking our congregations to live out as well. Right. To be a church that's generous towards the right things, which I think is I think is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, coming up next, I'd love to continue this conversation Absolutely. with you. The, uh, the article from Relevant Magazine, Four Ways the Modern Church Looks Nothing Like the Early Church. We're going to continue that conversation here on The Common Good at AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show designed really for us to engage in a dialogue. I know the show is two hours, but we know that the conversation carries well past that two hours, and we'd love to engage with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. You can find us on a numerous array of podcast options. Uh, please, 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 if you feel so inclined, like leave a good review or a couple of stars. What's good? Five? Five stars? Five is good. Give us six. six give us six Come stars. On, we're Bar- trying. Borrow somebody else's stars if you can. We're trying. We've been at this almost a month. It's going to be a month later this week. That's pretty remarkable to me, actually. Yeah. That's pretty insane. We'll take we'll take betting odds on mo- how, if we make it through month two. How does that sound? <laughs> betting, I like that. That's a good idea. <laughs> well, we, we've been talking about uh, this article from Relevant. This story's talking about four ways 
the modern church doesn't look anything like the early church, mm-hmm. um, which again, the caveat I think was important because there's a lot that's different about today's landscape to then. Like you mentioned, you know, Christians were being set on fire, and yes. put on stakes. Like sometimes we don't want that part. We want to get back to this ideal of the early church. And, you know, one thing that stands out to me is that it was illegal to be a Christian. Then right. It's not, at least in our country. So there's certainly some components that play into, but I think these these four categories that the story outlines, um, for me at least, were really convicting mm. and uh, and challenging. And I don't agree with the entire article, obviously, but uh, some of it I found really fascinating. This this third one they mentioned is um, how we think about power. Hmm. And I, to me, this one is muddy for sure because the writer specifically talks about military, but just even in general, how we think about power and influence. And I see so often this obsession with like getting more and more Christians in power, like legal political power. And I find it so fascinating. That, I mean, it would be it would make sense to me that when so many of the themes of the gospel and Jesus's teachings are to the least of culture, that for you and I to be a part of like maybe the biggest global military superpower, it might be conceivable that Brian, you and I might miss some of the Bible's main themes mm. because we're so ingrained in a culture that celebrates and glorifies power, sometimes uh, in a way that's helpful, but many times in a way that I think is really, really unhelpful. It's sort of like so often our positions of uh, how we view power say things subtly like, oh, yeah, we can't really love all your enemies, though, mm. right? You can only love some of them. Like, how do you how do you see the church interacting with this dichotomy of power, like in a modern day sense? Yeah, I, I think I'm good with the church uh, aspi- or people, Christians, aspiring to have have places of influence and power within the culture, whether it be politically, militarily, or whatever else. But I think as long as it's done under the umbrella of remembering that Jesus did things for the powerless. Yeah, right. Jesus was drawn to the powerless, and it was the most powerful mm. who had the hardest time with Jesus. I guess the another way I would put it is, um, you know, if you're looking to to ascend to a place of power within our culture, again, business world, politically, militarily, mm. and you're a follower of Jesus, I think you're uh, going to have to wrestle with some things that other people won't have to wrestle with. Mm. Um, and you're going to need to look at the mirror because power can be intoxicating. Yeah, right. Um, and it doesn't look like what the early church was looking to do. Their mission did not appear to be um, to Christianize the culture mm. or to to get high up in the government or to do things, but that doesn't make it wrong. It's fine. It's, it's good. In fact, uh, for people to want to raise into the places of power within our culture, I think as long as they're doing it as a servant, they're doing it with, uh, through the lens of servanthood. And I would say that that's probably difficult, but possible. Yeah. No kidding. Well, and the other thing that I find so fascinating about the early churches, they, they seem pretty unmistakably non-militaristic. And again, you could lead that out to other conclusions maybe that aren't helpful, but they, they don't they don't seem fascinated with the, the power of Rome, right? Like there's there seems very little in Jesus' teachings mm-hmm. about like and get a good seat at the Roman Empire. Like it's it seems he's always talking about conquering evil not by not by sword and spears, but by by suffering, by by love, by by death. Like I, mm-hmm. I think that to me is such an inversion of how we understand like get to the seats of power, which again, um I don't know that I necessarily have an issue with, but I think you hit the nail on the head. If the, if the posture isn't that of a servant, uh, that can spin out of control really quick, not just right. politically, but also religiously. I think pastors so often get sucked up into this, right? Uh, That's yeah. why we see so many of the stories that we've been talking about. Like, well, that guy got just a little too drunk on his own power. Yes. 
and that became intoxicating. You know? And power as a pastor is so uh, tempting yeah, because right. people want to listen to you. People want to ask your opinion on things. Right. You're on a stage. Yeah. <laughs> like lights. It could be really hard. And I would agree with you. The early church, I, I think that at times they got it, at times they didn't, right? What did Peter and the others ask of Jesus even upon his resurrection? Like, are you going to overthrow the government now? Yeah, let's like, Are do we going to like now elevate to be the powerful ones? That's true. Or who's going to sit next to you in heaven? I want to be there. I want to be there. And so... Uh, I think it's uh, it's something Jesus struggled with his early church in. Yep. They, I just don't think they had outlets for power. Yep. Um, and so the fact that we do have outlets for power and opportunities for power, I think, is dangerous. Mm. Uh, but it can also be used for good. Yeah. Agreed. And so, but we have way, you know, the history is littered with a lot of stories of uh, of Christians wielding power in negative ways. Yeah, and no so kidding. I would say it's a difficult thing. Uh, but if you can pull it off, it, it's, no pun intended, a powerful thing. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. All right, so the last one here, the uh, the story from Relevant Magazine, Four Ways the Modern Church Looks Nothing Like the Early Church. This last one kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. It mm. was how we study the Bible. It says the early church valued the corporate study of Scripture. And in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of us have dozens of Bibles in our homes but don't know anything about it, right? I've mm. certainly fallen into this myself, but this is how this section ends. It says... It wasn't an option to become a Christian meant becoming reconfigured through the Word of God. And here's the thing. Prior to the printing press in A.D. 1450, most people couldn't read. The whole idea of doing private devotions was unthinkable until wow. 500 years ago. And yet, yeah. despite being illiterate, early Christians became fluent in Scripture by listening to the communal reading and teaching of God's Word. This idea mm. of like soaking in it, being shaped by it, not just privately over a cup of coffee, which is a good thing. Keep doing that. But together as a family, as a yes. community, to be shaped together by the Word of God was absolutely central to what they were doing. And they, I mean, that's Paul's letters, right? They would be brought to a church and read to everybody. That's the kind of the way it worked. If I could add a fifth one to this that goes along with this, when I read the early church, the stories of the early church, I am so convicted by the way that they relied on prayer. Yeah, that's good. Prayer wasn't something that they just did because you're supposed to pray. They were like, we can't survive without God's work, and the only way for God to work is if we pray. So we're going to pray and pray and pray. I don't think they had even an inkling that they could be like, no, I'll take or leave prayer. And I look at my own life, my own church, all churches, most churches, um, it's just not something that's usually seen as foundational. It's yeah. something seen as good and right. important, uh, but we do a lot of things in our lives apart from prayer. When I read the early church, I'm like, man, what would it be like to pray in such a way that you're completely reliant on God for your yeah. very existence? There's yeah. something scary about that and convicting about that because that's not that's just not our circumstances. Right. And so therefore, that's I think good. in America, we're really... Most of our churches, most of us as individuals, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, are really deficient in prayer mm. because we can get away with not praying. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think sometimes our infrastructures are so well established that our gatherings, our events wouldn't look any different whether we prayed or not. Exactly. I, I think as a pastor, as a leader, just as a human, that's that's really convicting because I don't want to be a person of prayer just in times of crisis. Yes. I want that to lead. I want God to be absolutely central in all that I say and do. And that starts with the posture of prayer. That's that's good stuff. That's good. Man. Coming up next, we're going to talk about why attending uh, which college you attend actually has little to no impact on the job that you get. That's coming up next on The Common Good here at AM 1160. Hope for your life.
It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Common good friend. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Our show is all about diving into the mess, the stuff that maybe all of us are feeling but don't have a space to actually talk about. We know that things don't always have uh, easy answers or a nice pretty bow, and so rather than shying away from that, we want to enter into that space, and we'd love to invite you to enter into it as well. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. You can podcast the show. We also have carrier pigeons that will deliver it <laughs> directly to your porch if you'd like. <laughs> By the way, I saw, I read somebody the other day uh, while I was at home last night on Twitter. Uh, somebody used the phrase mobile devices. They really like, did? Yes. I okay. was all over. And here, here's another thing I, I find <laughs> odd. That we would love for you to follow us on Facebook, but have you noticed that uh, that the things that get most traction on our Facebook page are like embarrassing pictures of you and I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the one yesterday was like sleep deprived Ian. Yes. And all <laughs> of a sudden it's getting shared, it's getting liked. I'm like, all right. <laughs> Not like the thoughtful post about yes. a thing that's happening in the world. It's like, look at Ian, really tired. It goes, the- back, it goes back to your story the other day about like the most shared thing or like thing being that egg. I think <laughs> yes. that's going to be for us. Like that picture of you was haunting. I saw it when I went to sleep last night in my head. But- okay, well, what wasn't shown though was there was a crop it was me pointing to my cup of snacks <laughs> and the cup was empty and i was sad about the snacks and that was conveniently cropped out you in fact just look genuinely genuinely sad yeah maybe look like a serial killer it was really strange well <laughs> speaking of social media <laughs> that's better than speaking of serial killers that's, true. that's a good point uh the headline of this story reads that joanna Gaines opens up about her anxieties with social media saying that it can rob us of authentic moments, which I think is 100% true and maybe something that most of us uh, have felt at some point mm-hmm. in our lives, how social media, while it's not evil in and of itself, nope. can certainly uh, rob us of some of those moments. Yeah, Joanna Gaines, you guys know her from uh, her and her husband, Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, uh, do that show, what's it called? Fixer Upper. Yeah. And uh, my wife, as tangentially here, my wife loves this show. Oh, same. Loves this show. So when I see the name Joanna Gaines, that gives me anxiety because <laughs> in my house, it's like who can get to the remote first? And that you'll know by if Sports Center's on right, or if right. Fixer Upper's on. But well, see, my anxiety isn't about watching it. My anxiety is about after we watch it. <laughs> my wife was like, oh, we can just knock out this wall and put in four bathrooms here. What it's like, going to oh, cost oh, you. No. <laughs> we could turn our garage into a, yeah, an apartment. Could. <laughs> yeah, could is in air quotes for sure. But as you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines, they are believers. They are they're impressive people. Just had a baby, and uh, she wrote very thoughtfully here about uh, what social media has done in her life. As she's gotten more notoriety, she has felt greater pressure to be out there on social media and to almost portray an image that says, hey, what you think you see of me uh, on TV is who I am all the time. And she uses the word anxiety. Which I thought is very interesting. It wasn't pressure. It wasn't like, oh, I feel like I need to get to this point. She said, no, social media has begun making me anxious. And I think for a lot of us, we can get that because we feel this pressure 
to be the perfect people on social media as pastors oh, or totally. just regular people, right? We want people to think we have our lives all together. I have to post something that's worthy to be liked or commented on. Yeah, right. And social media, Facebook particularly, can begin to raise this anxiety in us that I think she's highlighting that is absolutely true. Well, and it's and it's not just anxiety. I think a lot of it is um, borderline addicting, right? Yes. I, we were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago about the red hue of the notification was uh, directly, specifically engineered to create a certain response in the brain. A lot of these apps are designed by the same companies that design like slot machines. Even like the the pull down refresh motion of like a Twitter or Facebook is meant to simulate like the pulling down of a of a slot machine. In it's fact, wild. there's 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 even things that like equate getting a notification to the same endorphin rush of uh of like smoking a cigarette. Um, or like seeing a close friend, like there's stuff that's activated in the brain now that we know. So it's not. It, it is a very real physiological uh, attachment in some in some yeah. sense that not only do I have to like compare myself to everybody. You know, a lot, a lot of what we do is we we compare our behind the scenes to everyone else's highlight reel. And when you look at social media, everyone's living their best life, or so it seems. Yeah. That can create a certain level of anxiety as well. Like, man, I'm not I'm not living enough. And this yeah. idea of like I gotta I gotta filter. Everything constantly. There's there's literally now like a growing trend of Snapchat dysmorphia of people that want to look like how they look in their Snapchat oh, photos, which is just bonkers to me. And there's, I mean, you know, I read this article on Business Insider, and it just says it was surprisingly easy to quit Facebook after 13 years. And the article is pretty unremarkable, but it was someone saying, "I just got tired of the rat race. Yeah. I got tired of what it was doing to me." <clears throat> it was like a playing game of whack a mole, trying to keep up with all the notifications yeah. and emails and. I thought, man, there's there's some wisdom to like, hey, is this thing actually adding value to our lives or is it just making us is it just making us crazy? Yeah, and I think the answer is probably both. Like I get that endorphin thing. Even last night, I think I was mindlessly going through my phone, you know, we we're watching TV with the kids. And like we were joking before about the picture we posted on our Facebook page. I was yeah, like, oh, right. I wonder if anybody liked that. Like yes. that's the first thing you think about. I wonder if anyone had anything to say about that. Totally. And it's just when that is on your mind over and over again, it's hard to disconnect from the world. It's yep. hard to be present with your kids. Yep. Uh, and Joanna Gaines in, in her article goes, it says she goes on to encourage her readers to step away from the phone or computer if you find yourself mindlessly scrolling because that can only feed that anxiety beast when it comes to trying to achieve that so-called perfect-looking life. Wow. And, and that's – the Bible has a lot to say about it. Yeah, right. Right? It says – don't be anxious about anything, but present your request to God that 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 we're to be content in who we are in Christ. Uh, and and I don't, I think what we want all of us to understand, and we often don't, is that that social media is not a neutral thing. Yeah, like it does have an effect on us. And in fact, the creators of it are kind of they're the ones who are dictating the effect they want it to have on us. Yeah, I remember listening to a, a lecture years ago about technology. And the, the keynote speaker had said, it's it's sort of like using a shovel. You can use a shovel to either plant a garden or to whack somebody over a head. <laughs> but either way, however you're using it, like, it's it's going to give you blisters. It's going to yep. give you, you know, if you use it long enough. Like, it is not neutral. It's shaping us in some way, shape, or form. And I've had people encourage me, you know, turn your phone on black and white. Oh, you uh, told me that. It kind of helps reset some of the, the addiction patterns. You can, you know, you can control what apps are on the home. There's, like, little things you can do. But I think also... Sabbath, like Sabbathing, not just from work, but from technology, like yes. unplugging stuff, taking batteries out if you have to and saying, okay, I don't think this thing is evil, but for the next 24 hours, it's not going to have a hold on me. And like that reset, I think has this really like sacred power to remind us like, oh, I'm not, 
I'm not the sum of what I can post online. Yes. Like this thing doesn't control me. This is a tool and a resource and I can stay in contact with people, but it, it doesn't own me. And that, that rhythm of like unplugging, I think is really important. It was really interesting. I have a buddy who told me that when they went on a two week trip with their kids, their kids are a little older, like teenagers or whatever. Uh, they take their phone away from them and they give it to them for 30 minutes a day. Wow. And in the beginning, he said his kids were really mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. well, what if something going, you know, he said by the middle of the first week, the kids stopped looking at their phone. And at the end, they were actually disappointed when they were allowed to have their phones no back. No kidding. And I think we all know that in our minds, but we can't get to the point of going, yeah, so let's make that part of our rhythm in our day-to-day at home lives. Yeah. But it was fascinating. It was his own family. He just said, this is what we found. My kids didn't even want their phones back at the end because they enjoyed not being tethered to it. I Man, I think that's fascinating. That's actually a really great segue into what we're going to mm-hmm. talk about next, which is uh, the danger of comparison. Oh. So coming up next, we're going to talk about what are some of the dangers of this constant addiction to comparing ourselves to everybody else. So that's coming up mm-hmm. next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. to take just a minute let that groove sit yeah just groove with that jam <laughs> i don't even know what that is but i like it i also can never say just groove with that jam yeah i probably shouldn't have <laughs> i'm wearing a fedora and a cardigan that's not a not a smart move uh welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm, and uh our hope for this show is to dive into the stuff that hopefully a lot of us feel at the core whether we've talked about it or not whether we've articulated it or not um but to find maybe some common ground, some common good that we can bring to the world in actually engaging with these conversations. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. We can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows are there. Um, and we were just talking about social media, right, which isn't evil in and of itself. But we've right. all kind of felt this uh, this avalanche of, like, anxiety and temptation and addiction to this platform, which I think segues into this story that I found on Christianity Today and the headline just says this, uh, Christian comparison isn't pretty, mm. which is a little bit of a, a play on words. And it's it's written particularly from the perspective of like fashion and social media and like the version of myself uh, that I depict online, which I I totally get. Like I've posted photos before of something going on in my house post or like took the photo and then realized that there was some clutter in the background. Yeah. You like clean that clutter. <laughs> you're not really cleaning it, though. You're just getting it out of frame. Yes. Right. And then retake that photo. And again, I don't think that's awful, right. but it certainly does. Like, I want to, I want to unpack what's the thing behind the thing that leads us to that kind of behavior. Like, oh, I can't let people know that there are toys on the floor of my house. Yeah. Uh, like anyone with young kids knows, like, yeah, that's just a reality. But there's this, this sometimes uh, like ever increasing addiction to like not only put this version of ourselves out, but to then now compare that version of right. ourselves with every other person. Yeah. Uh, and for me, it's not so much about, like, does my house look good? This is actually something my wife and I talk a lot about because she really struggles having people over uh, because she feels like there's a need to have the house perfect when people come over. Right. And I could care less. And oh, we've really? had, to, what, yeah, we've had to realize, not care less. Like, sometimes it looks like a bomb went off in my house, and I don't want people over at that point. <laughs> right, but, right. But it does get ridiculous because we're stuffing stuff into closets, literally. <laughs> right. Like, we're not, not really cleaning, cleaning right now. We're just um, – but, man, uh, c- comparison is is something that causes me an unbelievable amount of anxiety yeah. and struggle. 
yeah. uh, unneeded struggle. In fact, I really respect people that don't struggle with this because as a pastor, and this whole comparison thing is so embedded, at least in my soul, yeah. like you, know, you and I talking like, oh, your church is bigger than mine. Your church is this. So that right. person's church is that. Right, right. Uh, and I think parenting, man, as you as you get oh, older totally. with your kids, as your kids get older, it is it is a real problem. Like it people, already is, even like if they're not walking as fast as some other kid, or they're not believable. All of that, and, and then your kids get older, and it's like, oh, is my kid in the right sport? Is my kid yes. this? Is my kid getting these right grades? Is am I ra- You know, for you at the age your kids are, like, are we? doing the exact thing that this theory says we should be doing with our kids. And this constant comparison yeah. um, really can become all-consuming. Yeah. Um, and I think I struggle with that. I'm just going to lay that on the table. I struggle with that um, because I think what it is, Ian, is I think at the heart of it is an issue of image, mm. that, that we get our identity and our image from – what people think about us yeah, right. and what they see of us. Right. And that, that, so I've got to look good on social media. Uh, I've got to look good on the stage yeah. and s- preach the perfect sermon. My kids have to be the perfect kids and all this stuff. And you just heap all this unnecessary stuff upon your life. And all of a sudden, you know, your this comparison weight just becomes crippling. Yeah, totally. Well, and the, the thing that I love about this story is that it talks about this idea of, not comparing ourselves to everybody else uh, is actually a really subtle way of being countercultural. It's yeah. these tiny acts of resistance. Cause the thing about comparison, there are people that I compare myself to that they have no idea that I'm even doing it. It actually has very Absolutely. little to do with them and exactly what you were saying, a whole lot more to do with the posture of my heart. And that's not to say, you know, I see some people that post photos and their house is always immaculate. That person may have the gift of hospitality or fashion yeah. and that, that I'm not judging those motives at all. I, I know though that sometimes I'm really paying attention to what's going on at the heart level, like me making sure this version of me is public or this part of my story is, is known and shared and liked, like there's an ugliness underneath that sometimes that says, Oh, you think, you think that you're not lovable on your own or that you're actually worth anything on your own unless you're doing this. Or like you were saying, unless your church is this size, you've, you know, published this many books. Like it's, infectious and i think at every level we, we've all felt that and how, how do we actually like speak to the to the root of the thing that says hey this comparison thing it's it's not bad to ask questions is my kid playing the right sport right are there things that we need to do different with their education those are those are great questions but when they become obsessive and you start to doubt your value right based on the comparison of somebody else that's that's when i think the whole model gets really inverted and really messy really quickly yeah and i also wonder if like the, the pendulum swing the other way is something that's going on. Like, have you noticed people, it's like, there's the comparison. There's the, there's the need to show like my life is perfect. And then there's the need on the other end to show my life is so messy, messy and authentic. Oh yeah. That's, that's good. also fake. Like you just want to be like, just live your life. Yeah. Be who God made you to be. Uh, yeah. You know, try to make the best parenting decisions you can make, be the best spouse you can be, keep following Jesus. Right. And be okay celebrating other people. Like, I know I'm doing poorly in this when I struggle to celebrate other people. Like, mm. again, laying all my cards on the table, there's sometimes I like when other people fail. Oh, wow. Because it makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> Which we, like, teach kids in elementary school that that's not how it works, right? right. Like, knocking someone down a rung doesn't lift you up at all. Right. But into adulthood, that's so much... I feel that in my soul sometimes. Yeah. Like, like, when I hear that somebody else is, like... 
I don't know. So in our jobs with their churches, like not that their church failed, but like when I meet with another pastor and he's like, yeah, hey, yeah, you know, we've kind of lost some people, this and that. I, oh, I always feel so guilty because there's always a twinge within me going, all right. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, right. And I, I know that I'm doing bad at the comparison thing when I can't celebrate other people's accomplishments. Yeah, right. And uh, when I can celebrate others of people's accomplishments, that means I'm probably doing well with uh, my own identity and just who God has made me and feeling secure in that. And it's not, hmm. it's not based on other people being better than me or worse than me. And, and this is a real struggle for me. I'll bet you it's a struggle for a lot of people. Well, I appreciate you saying that as a pastor, too, that it's a struggle because I think sometimes there is an assumption that you graduate from this struggle. Like once you've been a Christ follower long enough or once you've reached a certain level of status or whatever, it's just not an issue. And I think it's one of the things I love about this show. Like let's talk about this thing that I've met people, you know, worth $10 million and people living on the streets who have shared this same struggle. Yep. And that's a thing that binds us together. That what if, what if we actually not we're just simply concerned with our own confidence and identity but speaking worth and value and yeah. identity into other people – and it's not just about me not comparing myself to others, but helping others like also hop off the treadmill. Yes. Like, man, you're already – the truest thing about you is that you're loved, that there's a God who created you, who knows you by name, whether, mm. you, whether or not you recognize him. Like that, that to me is such an important thing to remind people of all the yeah. time because like, like you've just admitted, and I appreciate that honesty, it's easy to forget. Yeah, and I think this is why you and I have both said we love to preach about identity uh, and your your identity in Christ, that you're a child of God, you're more loved than you could ever imagine. Right. I think partially because people need to hear it because that gets them off this treadmill. But I think from listening to you and I, I think we need to hear it. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I preach to my people often uh, what I need to most hear. Absolutely. And knowing that I'm loved, I'm a child of God, I'm more loved than I could ever know in Christ yeah. is something I need to remind myself day after day after day. Totally, man. That's good stuff. Well, we're going to shift gears here a little bit coming up next title of this story is It Doesn't Matter What College Your Kids Attend. <laughs> so let's dive into that a little bit next on The Common Good and AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show really with multiple layers. One, engaging in the stuff that we have in common. Two, hopefully bringing some good into the world. Yes. But three, also like hopefully helping people see better clarity, just the common stuff around us, right? Most of us don't live on the mountaintop all the time. We live our lives in this common space. How do we actually help one another redeem that common space, the ordinary space, the the mundane even? How do we see all of this as like this opportunity to engage with one another, to engage with God? I think that is a really, really uh, important thing for us to learn to yep. do, which I don't, I don't often do very well, to be honest. Yeah, and hopefully to have some laughs. You yeah. know, one of our goals in this show uh, is to have laughs. To, to you know, life can feel really serious sometimes, and so I do wish they could see us between segments sometimes. I believe uh, <laughs> little dance parties break out. I was just singing "Greatest Showman" into the microphone for a while. Josh, Josh, our producer, gave us a riddle that quite honestly didn't make much sense. How you define a, a dance party might be overreaching. It's you dancing and me just looking and oddly singing at you. the Greatest Showman. <laughs> You can find us on Facebook at uh, The Common Good Radio Show or at 1160hope.com. You can find all the previous shows there as well. But as I mentioned earlier, uh, the heading of this story from Psychology Today says, Back off. It doesn't matter what college your kids (laughs) attend. And uh, I would love to know what you think of that headline. Uh, I think it's true. Um, 
the the thing that when it says back off, it's clearly written towards parents. <laughs> yeah, Psychology right. today is saying, hey, parents, you're killing your kids with all the pressure you're putting on them. Right. Schools, you're killing the kids with all the pressure you're putting on them. And basically the premise, and you're going to dive into it a little bit more here, is that we are creating uh, anxious, depressed, stressed out high school students and junior high students. Yep. Um, because of all the pressure we're saying, saying you must get perfect grades and all the AP classes and all the extracurricular activities you can so that you can go to the greatest college, so that you can have the best right. job, so that you can live the American dream. And these kids are just cracking. Well, and the, the story opens with this. It says it's no secret that young people today are stressed. A poll by the American Psychological Association revealed that high school kids are the most stressed out people in America and 83% of them attribute their stress to school. So they're likely not homeschoolers because I did all my work <laughs> from the couch. But they included a couple of quotes from uh, either high school seniors or recent graduates, and um, none of them are like necessarily haunting. They maybe are going to sound sort of familiar, but uh, one says, I'm a senior in high school, and from a young age, I've always been taught that I won't be able to get into a college unless I have mostly A's. Yep. Another, another student says, anything less than an A was unacceptable, and it was ingrained in us uh, early by our parents that perfection was our only choice for success in this competitive world. And mm. there's a number of other quotes and maybe you can commiserate with that. And you know, the, the, the point of the article isn't even to knock uh, high achievement or high excellence yes. or uh, instilling like drive and commitment and strive. I think all that stuff um, in its right context can be really helpful. Even, Absolutely. You know, because we've seen the counter of that, you know, if it's just lackadaisical um, kind of meandering, that, that's not good either. But there's, this article is fascinating because it's talking not only about, the effects of the stress, but also um, how this type of this particular type of like setting that bullseye, that target does not have the long term effects that many of yeah. us were taught that it actually does. And I so we've talked about this often on the show. My oldest daughter is a freshman in high school. So I'm entering this high school world. It's 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 less theory for me now and much more everyday life. Right. Um, and I still feel like I remember what it was to be like in high school, right? Like I'm 41. High school yep. doesn't feel that far away from me. I can still remember it. Yep. Her experience is categorically different yeah, than I mine. It, it is it. it is apples and oranges yep. because uh, the amount – and it's not bad stuff, but not just the amount of pressure and the amount of work they get, but the amount of opportunity they have uh, to um, extracurricular activities yeah. and other things – uh, every now and then, my wife and I need to talk to her and just be like, "You good?" Yeah. Like, and and I think my wife, my daughter, is really healthy in the sense of the way she processes and does things, but it's it's an issue out there. And so, part of the point of the Psychology Today article here is that they say, "Listen, it doesn't matter if your kid goes to the Ivy League school. Uh, there's a college. Basically, if a kid wants to go to college, they're going to get into a college." Yeah. And parenthetically, the worst colleges are usually the cheaper colleges, they say here. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, your kid is going to get trained and and have tools to go out and, and uh, be happy and find a job and live their lives. But instead, what we're putting on them is draining their happiness and draining their joy uh, and is just, uh, you know, setting them up for failure. And so I, I, I do. I resonate with this as my daughter gets older. Um I want her to have the best. Yeah. And sometimes we as parents project what that best is. And this yep. psychologist is saying, you know what? Be careful what you're teaching and you're telling them is the best. Yeah, that's good. 
later in the story, it says the more specific myth I want to take on is that there is a great advantage in getting into an elite, expensive, hard to get into college. The myth is fed by a failure on the part of people who should know better to distinguish between correlation and causation. Yes, going to a prestigious college correlates with getting a prestigious job and high income later in life. But that does not mean that going to the prestigious college is in any way the cause of such success. And later it talks about this study from Stacey Dale and Alan Kruger, who are a mathematician and uh, an economist, respectively, linking not only um, income, but also just general satisfaction and happiness with their job, with their family, with their home situation. And um, it's pretty fascinating because, and again, this is where I feel like my parents kind of knocked it out of the park. They taught Mm -hmm. us to think critically. They taught us to... Um, to certainly go after the things that we felt like God had laid in our heart, but to also not let that become like a myopic obsession either. Yeah. And they they really they pushed us to start. They knew when we weren't giving it our best. Yes. They also were really intent, really consistent about speaking, like we were just talking about, truth and identity, that you're, you are not the sum of your grades yeah. or your salary or the job you get or, like you were saying, the size of your church or any of those things. Yes. And uh, I don't think I realized at 16 – like how formative that would be for me 20 years later. Yeah. Um, but that just continues to be this echoing reminder. And this, uh, this story seems to articulate that we're, in a lot of ways, we're really screwing our kids up by yes. like putting this crushing weight on them at all times. And here's the last line of this article, let me read it for you, is not just a great line for our high school kids. Uh, but for when I read this, this was like a punch in the gut to how I view life. Hmm. Because all of us think like, we're always like willing to give up our our uh, contentment, happiness, whatever now for some sort of future happiness. Yeah, right. And like it's going to be better now if I just go crazy. And we're putting that upon our children. And this psychologist writes this. Man, just eat this up. This is crazy. I need to write this on my wall hmm. in my office or uh, at home or whatever. The best predictor by far of future happiness is present happiness. Wow. The best predictor by far of future happiness is present happiness. If we actually believed what this psychologist is saying, how would that affect uh, not just the expectations we're putting on our kids, but how would it affect how I live my life today? Yeah, no kidding. Crazy. Well, and I've I've seen TED Talks and read articles and done research myself that um, this idea that this dangling carrot, that's going to be the thing that brings me happiness, whether it's a salary bracket or it's a square footage of my house or like – this is not. I mean, these are not written by Christian authors by any stretch. But sometimes it feels like, oh man, they're touching on gospel right there. That this idea that you think that you'll be happy once you fill in this blank, like whatever's on the other side of "I'll be happy when" is probably your idol. That's yeah, probably that right. That's that's your functional god. And the idea of contentment and happiness. Not saying don't still work hard and strive and reach for the stars and dream and all that stuff, but. The idea that that thing will bring me happiness um, is a myth that I think we've perpetuated and believed for quite some time. We need a sound drop here as, as this show gets going of like a bomb because you just <laughs> dropped you just dropped a theological truth bomb that Thanks. people need to hear. Whatever's on the other side of when I achieve that or get that is your idol, yeah, friends. That. That is worth that. That preaches. That is worth your weight in gold, right there. Yeah, Do not worship the idols of our culture. Uh, be content. Present happiness leads to future happiness. Yeah, thanks, man. That's good. Well, that was a heavy topic, and we like yeah. to wrap up the show every day with just some lightheartedness, some some fun stuff that we found on the internet. So, uh, coming up next on the common good is internet insanities, right here on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. 
Usually, we're diving into some serious topics. Today was no exception. There's certainly some uh, some heavy themes there, but we like to wrap up the show just sharing some ridiculousness we found online. You may be surprised to hear this. Sometimes the internet has absurd things <laughs> so, on it. <laughs> so two things here. Sometimes it has absurd things, and it's always true. Always true on the always internet. True. Wow. I think if you remember anything we talked about today, it's the internet is always right and oh, true. Come on now, people. So sad. Makes Come me so on. sad. All right, why don't you kick us off, Brian? Yeah, this is uh, Florida. It's our friends from Florida. Of course it is. So Universal Studios in Orlando, which my kids love. They they preferred Evo over Disney World because of the Harry Potter stuff. Sure. Sure. Here's the headline. Uh, Universal Orlando now has a butt-naked troll that farts glitter at guests. Oh, my gosh. There might have been words there I can't say. I'm not sure. but Yeah, I don't know. The, Josh is, our producer is freaking out right now behind the glass. <laughs> so you, you might not be allowed to say that. We're, we're about to find out. Florida theme parks takes interactive to a sparkly new level. <laughs> Jeez Louise, Brian. All right, well, it's been it's fun. all from the movie Troll. It's, it's been a fun it's, month. It's been fun having a show, guys. Uh, this, is our last, this is our last show together, obviously. <laughs> Might as well keep it going then. Also out of Florida, if I may. Florida. The headline says it all. Florida man thought he stole opioids, took laxatives instead. <laughs> I'm not even going to dive into the specifics of this story, but what what an unfortunate day for that guy. Those I, I don't know a whole lot about opioids, but I think laxatives behave differently in the body than opioids do. Uh, so I've been told. Yeah, this guy did not have a good day. So I've been told. So the next one, we're in France. We are in France. And just the headline says this. Student allegedly calls in hoax bomb threat to avoid seeing his parents. Oh, my gosh. Authorities said the student's parents were on a flight to his city, to his city, when he called in an anonymous tip. On January 18th, the EasyJet flight taking off in France had to be diverted because of a fake bomb threat while it was in the air, which is a big deal. Authorities received an anonymous call that suggested a bomb could be on the plane. They returned to the airport but found no bomb. Authorities investigating the call said the person behind the threat was a 23-year-old college student. He allegedly didn't want his parents, who were on the flight, to visit him. Oh my gosh. They took him into custody and charged him with, quote, false news compromising the safety of an aircraft in flight. That guy's got some mom issues, man. <laughs> yeah, also some conflict avoidance issues. Yes. Like, just s- send a text message, man. Like, what do you, that is, that, I mean. That one's something. Okay, so this one says, guy wants to sue his parents for having him without his permission. <laughs> so 27-year-old uh, Raphael Samuel from Mumbai decided to sue his parents after they conceived him without asking for his permission. And <laughs> the next line says, ridiculous. the less you think about it, the better it is. So, He's, uh, again, maybe there's a a real story here uh, for another time. No. The fact that this is an actual case, this kid is uh, succeeding in this suit, it seems. Like, it's currently, um, it's happening right now, I guess. uh, He's succeeding in the suit? I guess so. I mean, he's suing them. It wasn't laughed off like a court is taking it so he could sue his parents for having him without his permission. There's some pain in there. That's hard. That's hard. All right. Hong Kong. World War One grenade discovered among potatoes at Hong Kong Potato Chip Factory. The mud cake device was found Saturday in a shipment of potatoes from France. Hong Kong police destroyed a German-made grenade from World War One on Saturday morning after the device cropped up in a shipment of imported potatoes at a local potato chip factory. Thankfully, it was discovered by authorities with caked mud and dirt. 
Uh, police say that they used a high-pressured water firing technique to safely detonate the weapon. That's crazy because it would have looked like a potato. Yeah, right. No kidding. Like I think it, would, you know, it probably looked like a potato, and thankfully, <laughs> nothing bad happened. I say that would that would be a, a surprising batch of mashed potatoes had that uh, had that been allowed. Right? That would be an explosive recipe. Yes. Um, oh, God. This headline: Statues too racy for Facebook. Social media giant blocks photos. Of museum nudes <laughs> says a Geneva Art Museum says Facebook prohibited from promoting an upcoming exhibit with uh, images of two statues, a half-naked Venus and a nude kneeling man. The Museum of Art and History took to Twitter to say it had wanted to post pictures of the statues on Facebook to promote the Caesar and the Rhone exhibit that opens Friday, but the social media platform prevented us from it because of their nudity. Which again, maybe that's maybe this is a discussion for another time too. That's a pretty I mean, I get why these permissions, why these uh, parameters are in place on platforms like Facebook, but isn't our technology smart enough to recognize like classical works of art uh, from somebody at a frat party or like that? Just seems crazy to me. Yeah, that feels like uh, feels like the filter there is a little a little much. Yeah, no kidding, a little much. All right, I'm going back to Florida. Sure, why not? Here we go. I am. By the way, I'm a little worried. My wife is in Florida this week, and from all the stories we read in Florida, (laughs) I'm a little worried about. Either how she'll be when she comes back, or what's going to happen to her Should while she's down there. Should we be watching her? Like, does she have a Twitter handle we could follow? No, but what? What if one of these? One of these I read this week. It's like woman visiting Florida. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. Florida woman arrested after allegedly throwing frozen pork chop at boyfriend. A Florida woman was arrested because wow. she got into a bizarre fight with her boyfriend. This lady, forty-eight years old, and the boyfriend got into a spat around 9.45 p.m. on Friday, just north of Tampa. The fight <laughs> escalated when she allegedly threw the meat at her boyfriend. The pork chop hit the man in the face, left a half-inch <laughs> cut on his eyebrow, and she was arrested. Ah, oh, man. So she was really hamming it up. <laughs> You're trying. I You're trying. Sort of reaching is uh, maybe more appropriate. <laughs> that is... I mean, all jokes aside, that would hurt, though, right? That's, yes. I mean, of all the cutlery to be throwing, I feel like. Is it cutlery like knives and forks? What would what would you call a pork chop, then? What am I thinking of? Meat. meat yeah, <laughs> meat is one way. <laughs> yeah, I think well, I'm right. I don't I, know. Yeah, I think you probably are, too. I'm okay. a little sleep deprived. Uh, this one says, this U.S. state is considering raising legal smoking age to 100. Do you want to <laughs> guess the state? Just take a swing. Florida. (laughs) Ohio. Nope. Wait, let me guess one more. Okay. That feels like uh, California. Okay, good guess. Uh, Wrong. Okay. But good guess. Uh, Would-be cigarette smokers in the U.S. state of Hawaii might have to wait a very long time for their first legal drag after a lawmaker introduced a bill that would bar sales to anyone under the age of 100. (laughs) Which, to be fair, if you've made it to 100, you just do whatever you want. Like, God's... I'm picturing this 101-year-old guy strolling in being Finally. like, freedom! <laughs> <laughs> he just comes rolling in and everyone else is all jealous. Just like a baller. All right, that was my last one. You got people, one more? People are like, can you buy for us? <laughs> this 98-year-old is like, please help me out. I had one more, but it's it's more of a downer, so we're not going to go with it. But uh, it had to do with somebody getting eaten by a bear, so I'm not going down that road. <laughs> I feel like you just went down that road by telling us that. Yeah, no, we're going to stay away from it. So it's a sad one. It's a sad one. So uh, what did we learn today? I feel like we tackled some heavy stuff. We did some good stuff. I think what's going to stick with me was uh, 
was the idol that can be comparison uh, and, and striving and this anxiety we have uh, over wanting to have more and thinking that the next big thing that we get is going to bring us happiness. Yeah. Uh, happiness. That's one's going to stick with me today. Yeah, I, I think the one that really resonated with me was uh, the ways in which the modern day church doesn't look like the early church. Yes, and 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 not letting that be like a weight that crushes us, but like taking real honest stock of who we are and who God's called us to be, good. and like stepping into that more and more faithfully every day. That's that's gonna be my big takeaway, and hopefully. You were encouraged, you were challenged, you were stirred some way today. We love doing this show with you, and uh, we look forward to joining you again tomorrow on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.